Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everybody, it is your dark helmet, Bruiser Holden McNeely. Whiz-brew the breakfast cereal, whiz-brew the bed sheets, whiz-brew the coloring book, whiz-brew the podcast. Kids love this one. Fooled you. <laughs> uh, what, hello my baby, hello my darling, hello my ragtime girl. Check please. <laughs> Check. We ain't found shit. Um, what uh, else? Br- Holden. Remember an era where check please was actually a great, well-written joke in a movie? Yes, hundred percent, hundred percent. One, two, three, four, five. That's what an asshole puts in his luggage. An idiot. Uh, an idiot. An idiot. That's what an idiot. He's surrounded he's, by assholes. Yeah, he's surrounded by assholes. I do love though reading the trivia about it that there's actually literally one guy <laughs> way in the back that doesn't raise his hand. Everyone else in the room does. There's only one man who would dare use raspberry against me. <laughs> Lone Star. <laughs> How come nobody told me my ass was this big? Oh, um, Snotty beat just... me twice last night. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just walks to the other room. This is maybe outside of Tommy Boy, a couple of other choice selections, one of the more quotable comedy films ever. I love this movie so much. I'm so glad we're doing this episode, Jake. And I think it's perfect for Wiz and the Bruiser, especially after we have covered... Have we not? Have we done Return of the Jedi? Do we still have to do that? No, one? we did, no, we did that Jedi. one. We did that one. Having covered at least the original Star Wars trilogy, and this, I, I'm realizing now one of my big nostalgia revelations. Same with Lexi when we sat down to watch it. I'm pretty sure I saw this film before I saw Star Wars. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> it is actually crazy how much stuff I know through this movie first. Like I. You know, the chest burster scene, I, that's in my primal memory. Yeah, that's a I thing no from idea. Spaceballs, not yeah. Ridley Scott's Alien. I also love, too, that this movie does what every comedy it felt like did back when I was a kid growing up, back in those times. Had one, at least one moment where I had to cl- cover my eyes because it was too disturbing <laughs> for me to see as a kid. And that's true for Pee Wee's Big Adventure and other films of the like. And I love that it exists in here because that was definitely a dangerous moment in the movie for me as a kid. Now I l- absolutely love it. Just scream with laughter every time I see that puppet dancing across the, the counter is so funny. What did you get? You got the special? Uh, it, it, there's, I, and I'm forgetting too many too. There, there's just a million hilarious one-liners in this film. And I do actually maybe think, and I'll return to this point at the end, but I do actually maybe think this is his funniest film. Just in terms of pure laughs, in terms of nothing else, there's there is very little substance. There's very little 
you know, there's very little that makes it this esteemed comedy film, like maybe say a young Frankenstein, but this, I think, pound for pound, may just be the funniest of Mel Brooks's films. There is way less ethnic slurs, so rewatching <laughs> it really is a more relaxing experience. <laughs> I mean, I love I'm not Blazing casting, Saddles. I'm not casting aspersions at Blazing Saddles. I'm just stating a physical comfort level. Right, right. I hear you. I hear you. The thing that really struck me this week, doing the research, was there was anxiety in the pit of my goddamn stomach about, like, is this does this stand up? I was I don't think mm. I've rewatched this movie as an a, as an independent adult. Like I think I was, you know, just about to go to college the last time I saw this movie. And rewatching it this week, uh I had like a little watch party in our uh patron discord. That's right. How did that go? Uh the I did my laptop overheated and the stream quality crapped out halfway through, but people still hang hung on. But the relief the actual like waves of like genuine appreciation and laughter as all the big jokes hit was so amazing. It really is that good. It really does hold up. And if you're a grown up who hasn't seen this since, you know, they were watching reruns on Comedy Central or HBO back in the day um, or renting it from Blockbuster. It's so reworth a watch. It is. It really, truly is a is a classic comedy. Um, executed with full, clear commitment in a way that a lot of comedies are not made anymore. And right. we'll get in, we'll get into that because I think that's a huge thing that differentiates Spaceballs from a lot of the later spoofiverse movies that have kind of uh, clouded our 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 world. And in a in a in a in a way, Spaceballs eventually did succumb to the pressures. Of uh, bad satire, which uh, I I think we might end on that note because mm. oofy doof, does it take a turn? I mean, the cast: John Candy, Rick Moranis, Joan Rivers, Dom DeLuise, among others. Just an incredible cast, incredibly comedically done. I love the constant fourth wall breaking; is so much fun, <laughs> especially as it is really trashing on that franchise. I think another thing we forget too, because this movie, surprisingly enough, to me at least. Was not was not a huge success in the theater, but I think that actually was also attributed to the fact this came out quite a bit later than Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And I think Star Wars Mania had died down greatly by the time it came out, so this again felt a bit like old news back then. But for me, with all of them existing at once and not having that going on, it was just fantastic. I just absolutely loved it, and of course, it's it's this really fun adventure story with really fun special effects. And concepts and ideas that actually worked in its favor as well. So let's just jump on in, Jake, and we can we can just let our freak flags fly on this one. First of all, I titled this portion A Brief History of Mel Brooks. I think I've been talking a lot with my sister podcast, uh, Pop History, who is doing an episode this week, who is releasing an episode this week on Young Frankenstein. We were talking about all of us getting together and eventually doing a full two-parter on Mel Brooks. Mm -hmm. That is something that I think we will get to. So that is why I call this a brief history, because I just want to set the stage for this particular film, and then at some point go back and really dive in. So before that, though, before we get to the film, uh, we shall start with the man himself. Melvin Kaminsky was born and raised in Brooklyn with three older brothers. His father died of kidney disease when he was just two years old. Brooks said, there's an outrage there. 
I may be angry at God or at the world for that, and I'm sure a lot of my comedy is based on anger and hostility. Growing up in Williamsburg, I learned Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I learned to clothe it in comedy to spare myself problems, like a punch in the face. He was also needed comedy because he was a small and sickly child, and therefore was bullied quite a lot. And uh, and so, of course, comedy ends up becoming a defense mechanism in that setting. To set the stage of Mel Brooks's childhood, imagine the shittiest stickball player on the entire street right? <laughs> having to learn how to juggle to avoid getting stabbed in the neck. Every time he tries to kick the can, he whiffs. <laughs> Dude, he let the hoop fall over so many times when he was pushing it with a stick. It was fucking pathetic. And after seeing a Broadway show at the age of nine, he declared he would be going into show business. And this would, of course, become true. It was anything goes with Ethel Merman. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, it's just think about this guy that is responsible for like what we consider modern comedy. Just like he like going like just watching from the nosebleeds in a Broadway theater like (laughs) and him being like. I wish to become an entertainer. (laughs) (laughs) So at age 14, he actually started out on the drums, which would cause him to change his name to Mel Brooks because his mother's maiden name was Brookman, and he was kept being confused too much with drummer Max Kaminsky. Of course, he was Mel Kaminsky, so that would probably be difficult. There's like there's this weird amorphous thing where, um, as a New York Jew, I think I can speak on this. Okay. The Catskills culture, the Borscht Belt, was this kind of... Shangri-La of Jewish immigrants and children of immigrants where Mm -hmm. for like $55 an adult could like spend a week at a nice like mountain country club. There were tons of like uh, health trends at the time that was like, you know, it's important for your vigor. Uh, You'll, you know, you'll catch uh, the yellow fever if you don't leave the city on a regular basis. And part of the all expenses Uh, entertainment experience besides tennis courses, golf courses, um, swimming pools, horse riding, all the kind of outdoorsy resort kind of things. The nightclub scenes at these resorts soon became the real place where these hotels competed with one another. And so it kind of became like, you ever see a cruise ship show? Like, have you ever wondered why there's a weird little Broadway show on cruise ships? It's kind of this established thing that hotels resorts had an active nightlife Mm -hmm. another thing that came about was the role of the tumbler yes and as a kid i witnessed tumblers in their element it's kind of insane all these you know all these hotels are rubble now but i grew up in the suburbs of new york and had you know it was part of a jewish family and part of it is we'd go to the raleigh we'd go to the uh, kutchers we wouldn't go to the concord that was for real fancy jews we were not fancy jews (laughs) my friends went to the concord and they said they had the laser tag there and i was like holy shit (laughs) so what is a tumbler jake so the tumbler is basically like think of a stand-up and like uh, a stand-up host's gig that is 24-7. Like it is your job to work the crowd, to hey, how you doing, to do little bits. You know, during meals were an important thing at these Catskills resorts, and the Tumler would like go from table to table and like do a little insult comedy and like, you know, be nice to the old ladies and just generally create this festive atmosphere, remembered everyone's names. It was this intense, incredibly social, incredibly dynamic position that made the entire experience, gave it a personal touch. And so the 
that role kind of morphed very quickly into stand-up mm-hmm. comedy mm-hmm. because the amount of jokes you have to memorize, the amount of like just on your feet, quick thinking that happened. It, it was built for comedy. So Mel Brooks, he starts out as a drummer and a pianist. But then one night, uh, by the way, side note about his drumming, he does talk about how that fed into learning comedy so well because he talks about making jokes on the offbeat, doing all these things that involve rhythm, that involve timing, that he learned actually in drumming and was able to really incorporate the two. But one night, uh, the regular comic got sick and he started doing stand-up, which led to him getting the job of Tumblr. And he was like pretty young to be a Tumblr. Usually... Uh, you know, you work as like a bellhop, you work as like a waiter at these Catskills resorts. And like, it, it's pure happenstance that he just had that level of energy that he got to be, you know, a tumbler. He would, in the middle of the day, put on an ill-fitting suit, fill the pockets with rocks, and then just scream, I'm ruined! And jump off the diving board <laughs> and stay underwater for as long as he could. <laughs> Uh, apparently, this is apocryphal, but I remember in one of the interviews I read, he did try to be a serious stage actor, and at one point he got a small role as a waiter, as a teenager, on a uh, Broadway stage, or maybe off-Broadway, I, I, I don't remember completely, and uh, he spilled the cups of water that he was carrying all over the two main stars, and the entire scene ground to a halt and the crowd started laughing, at which point he jumped off the stage and just started screaming, I'm sorry, it's my first day. I'm only a teenager, please. <laughs> Getting even bigger laughs. And then after that, he uh, was was taken off the production. So eventually his good friend Sid Caesar hires him to write jokes for a TV show in 1949, which led to his work on Your Show of Shows, a variety comedy series that was the launching pad for so much great talent. It would revolutionary revolutionize comedy on television. It really is kind of like SNL is what we have to thank for modern sketch comedy. This is what we have to thank to, for paving the way to even that it was so huge. It was really baby's first sketch. It was so early on and so funny. You can actually go see old episodes of it. Carl Reiner was on there, which, of course, they would end up having a lifelong friendship still to this day. Neil Simon, Woody Allen, and many more uh, were a part of this. This was such a such an early show for all of these incredible comedic talents. And with Carl Reiner, he ended up coming up with that classic two-man routine. If you haven't seen it, you need to look it up right now. The 2,000-year-old man, which got them on the Steve Allen show, and it amounted to a hugely popular comedy album. Really, that is what made them, st- began to make them household names. And so, yeah. The Sid Caesar show shows, it almost was a precursor to the sitcom more than a sketch show because each sketch would basically play out like a like its own little teleplay. True. And there would be recurring characters and recurring dynamics. One of the funniest ones to me was the, what is the Italian couple, right? <laughs> and they speak in Italian, but they're not actually speaking in Italian, right? I believe it's like sort of Italian sounding no. gibberish. And so the whole scene, they're not actually saying real words and but it's so funny the way everything is played and the way that they did it all it was great and of course it was all done live the show had to be like two and a half hours long just so that uh new york and chicago could both have time to tune (laughs) in 
Yeah, it was really kind of a wild thing. A trial by fire. So he goes from the Catskills to the stage to the television, and this is when he gets to the film industry. He was led to film because he had this crazy idea. He had a musical comedy in his head based around Adolf Hitler. And that would eventually, of course, be called The Producers in 1967. And at first he was going to make it a play, or a, or a musical rather. Then he was like, no, I'll make it, I'll, I'll write it for television. And then, and then realized, no, this is a movie that I'm sitting on. And he gets that made. It does pretty well. It starts his film career. But it actually would be Blazing Saddles that cemented his career in film leading to Young Frankenstein and a slew of other comedies through the 70s and the 80s. You've got History of the World Part 1 in there. You've got some great some great stuff in there. And meanwhile, in 1977, a science fiction film would become a worldwide phenomenon, and that film was called Blade Runner. No. No, it wasn't. It was called... Buckaroo Banzai! <laughs> no, no, wait, that's not it. What was it called? It was called... Star Wars. Episode four, A New Hope. <laughs> Didn't they? That was posthumous, That right? was posthumous, yeah. <laughs> um, after George Lucas died. Yeah. <laughs> and that man replaced him. That weird nerd replaced him and made all those prequels. And so we're around the mid to late 80s. Mel Brooks is not only a, uh, you know, a comedy guy, but he is the head of his own production company called Brooks Films. And they've had like a few genuine hits on their hands. Um, he actually is the one who produced The Elephant Man by yes. David Lynch. And that's why John Hurt owed him a favor to do a full cameo with acting and prosthetics in his in Spaceballs. But we'll, we'll yeah, we'll do that later. Um, the Fly, um, my favorite year. All of these movies are doing great. Uh, there's also some gigantic stinkers that are like just burning through money, like uh, Solar Babies, which yeah. I just need to acknowledge. Solar Babies, <laughs> while Spaceballs was happening, Solar Babies was just bleeding his company. And what's like, the premise of Solar Babies? It's this weird Logan's Run thing where, like, in a future where an uh, eco regime has stolen all the water. Genetically engineered super children um, find an alien magic ball called the Bodhi, and they use their skills that they've learned playing a futuristic roller skate lacrosse game to defeat the evil thing. But uh, it was directed by Alan Johnson. I'm so sad I asked that question now, Jake. I really regret that I did that. I was wish I had a VHS tape I could put in and rewind. From now. Uh, but it was directed by uh, Brooks's longtime friend, Alan Johnson, who's the guy who actually produced and put together all the big dance numbers in movies like Blazing Saddles and History of the World Part One, like he uh, and Young Frankenstein. He was his longtime collaborator and he was just shitting the bed on this high concept nonsense. I don't even think <laughs> it ever made it to theaters. I think it was only released on video. Oh, uh, really? It was around this time, uh, you know, it had been a while since he was actually behind the camera and directing a movie. History of the World Part 1 did very well, but um, this time he was going to address science fiction. I think the idea was, well, even though Star Wars was so long ago, all the other space, you know, it's just now part of the vernacular. It's something that everybody has the common reference for, you know, even though it came out it was like he was supposedly late to the party. The sci-fi genre had been matured enough that it's as rec the tropes are as recognizable 
as the historical epics in History of the World Part One or uh, black and white horror films like in Young Frankenstein. Like the the entire, you know, it just took that long for Star Wars to, in, to kind of soak into the culture so he could do the parody of it. Yes, he... Of course, he says he wanted this parody to be as close to the original as possible, which I find kind of funny because it jumps off in so many ways from what the original was. But it does essentially stay the course. And and though it was joked about in the film, Brooks actually made a deal with George Lucas that he would not make any merchandising based on the film as the action figures would resemble Lucas's for Star Wars. And Lucas's company would also end up handling the post-production. We'll talk about that when we get there. But essentially, he got George Lucas's blessing to make the film. That was the one caveat. Of course, you have him, Yogurt, uh, as Mel Brooks plays, joking a lot about the merchandising, but there was none made, and that makes a lot of sense. It was also, for Brooks, at this point, a film trying to get the whole family together. Unlike the previous movies... They were those movies were more aimed at a male audience, essentially. And this film was a little bit different. Brooks said it's a fairy tale and it's a love story instead of just fathers and sons. Like, let's say Wicked, the Broadway show. Why is it so successful? Mothers and daughters. A lot of shows on Broadway work because of mothers and daughters. The Lion King, mothers and daughters. But those few things on Broadway, that's my stuff. Like Young Frankenstein are fathers and sons. Spaceballs is fathers and sons, of course, because it's me and because it's a fairy tale with a princess and a guy who turns out to be a prince in the end and marries her. There's a love story, but it turned out to be mothers and daughters, too. So I got the whole family in that one. And he does attribute that to why it was so successful. I would attribute Ooh, it to something else, but I'll get there later. Can we, can we get to the fuzziness of history? Can we get to, like, you know, competing narratives here? Because I actually sure. have a different thing going on. Sure. I found a 1987 interview with Brooks in Starlog magazine. Obviously, he's referencing wit, wit, uh, uh, Wicked and things like that. So that's a more modern mm. opinion. In terms of why it worked so well. But at the time, this is uh, this is his quote. Uh, the 15-year-old is really, for me, today's target audience. They're very bright, they know a lot, and they go to a movie wanting to enjoy it. If they're over 40, they're much more discerning. That's why Brooks Films is alive. So I can make <laughs> movies for the over 40 crowd after I've gotten money from the under 15. <laughs> Sometimes, like with the Elephant Man, they cross over and attract everybody, And uh, but I don't care about that. I'm very happy when it just pays for itself. Everybody says, we want kids from age 8 to 80, and that's just bullshit. <laughs> and it does actually factor into it that uh, he screened Spaceballs uh, first for his uh, son, Nicky Brooks, mm-hmm. and then he sent it to screenings in colleges. He sent it like all over the place to get feedback and get like the maximum bang for... 15-year-old boys' buck. Yeah, I could so see that, though, because as a kid, I loved it, and there's so many jokes in it that I never got, but I loved Barf, John (laughs) Candy's character. I loved the cartoonishness of everything, Joan Rivers' take on C-3PO, all the ridiculous over-the-top stuff. And now as an adult, there's all these jokes that I totally went over my head, a lot of of a sexual nature, some, Mm -hmm. and... That sort of thing that I find so funny. What got me was the weird, subtle L.A. shit. Like, obviously, like, even as a even as a younger kid, I would still be like, oh, the Schwartz means dick. They're talking about dicks. Like, uh-huh. I get it. But like stuff where King Roland is like, um, 
an all white Mercedes. My uh, cousin has a <laughs> my cousin has a dealership in the valley. He was very nice to me. Like <laughs> yeah, all these yeah. like weird like her old nose. Like all yeah, this yeah. shit. So much no! weird Jewish LA like yes. shit that yes. completely went over my head and now I So you know, hilarious. Yeah, yeah. It's all so good. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, also credited for writing the screenplay are Ronnie Graham and Thomas Meehan. Graham's parents were both vaudeville performers, and he was a, a self-taught jazz pianist who started out as a nightclub comic, kind of like Brooks, known for his character monologues. He later performed on Broadway in the review show New Faces of 1952, in which he also contributed lyrics and sketches, and led to the, that led to awards and more shows. After that, he wrote for shows like MASH and The Brady Bunch Hour before writing for Mel Brooks, starting with the movie To Be or Not To Be, which was a movie that Brooks produced. Brooks talks about in an interview that uh, what really impressed him about Ronnie Graham was, yes, he was a competent writer, yes, he was great in the show, but but there were like real emergent celebrities on that production, uh, names like Eartha Kitt and other like uh, kind of hot young actors of the time. And uh, he would come out last of all the actors out the stage door. And even and like nobody knew who he was. Nobody cared. And he would just start screaming at the people being like, leave me alone. I'm a human being. Damn it. <laughs> and um, he's actually Ronnie Graham is actually. The priest who yes. officiates the wedding in the movie. It's quite funny. And yeah, that anger, that weird aggression in his performance. You can tell he's like great at like aggressive characters. <laughs> then you have Thomas Meehan, the other co-writer. His big break came when asked to write a musical based on a little known comic strip. Actually, a very well-known comic strip called Little Orphan Annie alongside a man named Charles Strauss who wrote the music, which would, of course, become the massive Broadway hit musical Annie. He also contributed humor to The New Yorker and wrote for various television shows and got into the screenplay business as well with the film To Be or Not To Be, again, produced by Mel Brooks, not exactly a Mel Brooks joint. But that's where Brooks discovered them, I feel like, or, or really brought them into the film business, at least. And it took the team six months to write the script. Initially, it was going to be called Planet Moron, but they learned there was already a British sci-fi spoof called Morons from Outer Space. And so he cha- they, so they all changed it. In order to do this, they went through letters of the alphabet to find another word to add to the word space. And as this was happening, Brooks spilled a drink and yelled out, BALLS! To which Ronnie Graham yelled back, Spaceballs! And this was also what led to the villains wearing ball-shaped helmets, and they added the element of Spaceballs throughout the whole thing. Fuzzy lens of history, Holden. Time is, a, is an incomplete circle. Various frequencies <laughs> bouncing against each other. But multiple websites told me this. From the Starlog magazine <laughs> interview from 1987 with Brooks, which in theory is when the story would be freshest in his mind, 
He said, uh, we thought Planet Moron would be a good title about a year after we started writing it. A movie came out called Morons from Outer Space. We finished and said, we need a smashing one world, one word title, something that has the word space in it and something that says screwball because it's a screwball comedy. I came in the next day with Spaceballs and we switched everything from Planet Moron to Planet Spaceball. <laughs> I love that too, though. I will say to throw this in there, Mel Brooks, phenomenal interviewee. Oh, yeah. And I feel like, though, a part of that is spinning yarns and mm-hmm. just spinning yarn after yarn after yarn. And I think after a while, that's why these things get so convoluted and contradictory, is that he'd almost rather tell a funny story to you in an interview than a boring one. And therefore, you've got all these different types of iterations on one story coming from Mel Brooks himself. Uh, and in a weird piece of irony, the uh, British movie Morons from Outer Space actually has canonically in its story that the characters play a, a futuristic sport called Spaceball. <laughs> Weird. Weird. That's a bizarre piece of trivia. I've never heard of that movie. I, I'm sure it's fucking garbage. We shall see. Let's talk about this incredible cast. I absolutely loved it. And a mystery was solved for me. And I'll get to that when we get to that particular cast member. But before that, we've got to start Bill Pullman, who, of course, plays our uh, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker mix cross character. I mean, you literally, his name is literally... Star like Skywalk or whatever, and Lone like Solo. He's yeah. actually a weird mush of the two characters. And he had only starred in one movie prior to this one called Ruthless People, which was a dark comedy that also starred Danny DeVito and Bette Midler. And I really want to go watch it now. And before that, he taught theater, and it was actually he was actually persuaded by his students to get into the film business. Pullman said, I think Mel was having trouble writing Lone Star. It was the last character he felt comfortable with because there wasn't a voice or shtick or something that was clear. So he worked hard. I had to bump up my game fast because I had never worked in Mel's style before. I remember at one point during rehearsals, Mel asked, does this tire you out? I must have looked I must have had a look of exhaustion. I told him I was fine and he said, "Well, I just don't want you to be doing the press tour and go, "Oh, I know how to play the line now." And just that term, "I know how to play the line now," taught me a lot. Initially, Brooks wanted James Kahn to play the role of Lone Star, but Kahn was very publicly dealing struggling with drug addiction, and that led the producers to turn that down out of insurance concerns. And then both Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise were offered the part, but turned it down, which gave Pullman his big break. And Pullman, like a couple other people involved in the film, had actually never seen Star Wars before making the film. I love this quote because it just gives you such a good idea of what, what movies were like back in the day. He said, I missed it the first time around because back in the day, you couldn't just stream it or whatever. Like if you didn't catch it in the movie theater and it went out of the movie theater, you had to wait like a very long time before it was available in some other fashion. You missed it. You know, you could actually miss something and not be able to get a hold of it. Next we have 
John Candy playing the spoof on Chewbacca Barf. I love John Candy so much, I want to do his own episode at some point. So again, I'm not going to dwell too long on him. But Candy, of course, did some minor television work in the 1970s. But it was working at Toronto's Second City Improv Theater that would get him national attention due to its TV series, SCTV. Again, we got to do an episode on that one. Which led to his amazing film work before Spaceballs and stuff like Splash and Little Shop of Horrors. John Candy's just the best. I just love him so much. Well, so apparently it was Rick Moranis that who his fellow Second City cast member mm. who pushed for him and uh, getting the Barf costume right was a gigantic hassle. Very, very frustrating. Initially, he was going to be wearing a full <laughs> bulldog face, which and then Brooks. I love Brooks has Mel Brooks has so many fun, funny lines about not spending the money or like every joke, every joke he makes about the movie has to do with money. If they, Brooks said, if they were going to hide John Candy behind a mask, you might as well, we might as well hire someone else for half the price. So instead they went with makeup as well as two animatronic ears that had to be manned by two crew members while Candy had a hidden control in his paw to move the tail and a 30-pound battery strapped on his back. Well, it's not like he was forced to march through Yuma uh, during the hottest day in record (laughs) wearing all that crap. The desert, for the desert shots, absolutely. Uh, Carrying someone, too. Just a nightmare. And this added on tech was very difficult at times for Candy to perform, especially early on during the scene where he's making a snack to a Bon Jovi song, essentially the first time we see him. Pullman said, that was a trying day for John. He wanted to play it a certain way. Mel wanted it a different way. And then he had to deal with the mechanical issues of the ears and tail. John Candy's sense of comedy was so ephemeral. It was these shy, short moments, and there was real difficulty delivering that while trusting the ears and him wanting more control over the tail it was a real testimony to his character that he never yelled he never got angry he would sit down say he needed a break and everyone would just back off then he would get up and say okay let's try it again also it's a testament to candy really quick jake that i feel like everybody whenever they talked about it they'd be like this or that about the rest of the cast, but everyone had to say about Candy. Yeah, I we we became friends. I really got along with him. He was such a sweet guy. Like everybody had to say. Apparently, the tail was activated by a button built into his one of his gloves, and yeah, he was yes. in charge of like whapping it. But he couldn't <laughs> like yeah, it would just go off. Yes, yes. Next, you have Daphne Zuniga, which I forgot that she ended up playing Joe Reynolds on Melrose Place, (laughs) which is so funny. She's such a badass in this movie, and she's really, really such a strong comedic actress in this movie. Nobody knows the the troubles I've seen. That can't be her. (laughs) She pursued acting in school at a very early age and made her film debut in the slasher film The Dorm That Dripped Blood in 1982 and a few years later starred opposite John John Cusack in Rob Reiner's The Sure Thing before getting Spaceballs. And yeah, I love her role. I love that badass moment when she grabs the machine gun. It's so awesome. Bitch! And then... (laughs) My hair! Like, she plays... In certain ways, she plays like an eye-rolly spoiled brat princess but she's so badass that it doesn't it 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 comes off well i think still it doesn't feel again dated well it's uh you know she's a druish princess even though she doesn't look druish meanwhile she doesn't look druish Uh, while Vespa is actually the Italian word for wasp. Ah, that's what I thought they were making a car joke there. Honestly, the whole Druidia thing is such a weird left field fairy tale thing. Yeah, and, and 
they talk about that too. I mean, George Lucas after the movie came out, he, he really enjoyed it and I'll get back to that later, but just to say also he was like if it wasn't a parody of Star Wars, it would still be a fun adventure fairy tale film and that's again what mel brooks attributes to this movie lasting having a really long shelf life and actually being his biggest money maker eventually even though it doesn't kill it in the box office next rick moranis and this is where the mystery was solved and i will get to it in just a second dark helmet of course played by rick moranis probably the funniest part of the movie to me probably the funniest person in the whole movie he started out as a radio DJ and went by Rick Allen in Toronto and was and joined SCTV in the third season via his friend on the show Dave Thomas. And the two quickly became a hit comedy duo, especially by playing the Canadian buffoons Bob and Doug McKenzie, who ended up being the protagonists of his first feature film, Strange Brew. Before Spaceballs, he had gotten famous as a bumbling nerd type in films like Ghostbusters and Little Shop of Horrors, which really makes this turn so funny because he's just this grubby, nerdy looking guy and he's so mean and so overconfident and such a ridiculous asshole. It just works so well it is endlessly hilarious in a way it's completely against his type you know he's no longer the meek little um was was he literally called melvin in ghostbusters like yeah, i think I he think was actually called melvin totally it it's it's so he's so great in this movie i just was rolling laughing watching watching him this time around. But this is the mystery that was solved. People always talk about, oh, where did Mc Rick Moranis go? He was so funny. Oh, he was wait. so good. You didn't know this? Well, I, I'm talking about this. I don't know what you had, what uh, you were going to tell me, but I don't know if it's a more tragic I, are, thing. Are you about to say something real heartbreaking? No, no, it's not a heartbreaking okay. thing. I was just saying, I think a lot of him being turned away from film is that, here's the quote from him. In the early movies I did, I was brought in to basically rewrite my stuff. Whether it was Ghostbusters or Spaceballs, I'm really not an actor. I'm a guy who comes out of comedy. And my impetus was always to rewrite the line to make it funnier. And he talks about how I think he was really turned off. Once he got to a certain level of success, he was doing, you know, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and stuff like that. He was just do doing off the script. But really what he loved to do is improvise. What he loved to do is be given a character and, and, and allowed to fuck with it. And I think he just became resentful of Hollywood. What's the sad reason? Well, uh, his wife died and he had to raise his kids. And he like, right. Yeah, uh, for and sure. And now he makes sad country albums and oddly endearing Jewish novelty songs. Sure. So it's like he still put stuff out. He still could have acted in things. But I think that he really was drawn to a style of comedy that he was in a way disallowed to get to do after a certain point in his career. Bill Pullman said, Rick really pushed the envelope more than Mel would. I think it was a part of him being younger and edgier. Mel's style was more, let's refine the line, but he would let Rick riff. Rick and John had more of a conceptual style, John Candy. Sometimes it would be tense. No one wants to say that's not funny when you're working. And I, yeah, I, I do love that. I do think that Rick Moranis brought like a more, like, for comedy for that time, a more alt comedy vibe to a more traditional comedy vibe that Brooks was throwing out there. There's a 30 minute thing uh, made for the anniversary of the movie called uh, Spaceballs, the documentary. And in it, Brooks calls Rick Moranis a great pain in the ass, the pain in the, a pain in the ass that you want to have on set yeah. because he would keep pushing for retakes and keep trying to 
uh, change the dialogue and keep punching up each little thing he had control over because he wanted the funniest product possible. Kind of reminds me of Henry a little bit, actually, <laughs> to be honest with you. Both short men. Both little guys that are fucking aggressive about their comedy. <laughs> Uh, supposedly, uh, the entire scene where he's, uh, imp- like doing the action figure reenactments of like, well, I have money and power and that's what you Completely want. improvised. Yeah. That was something Mel Brooks came up with the day before and was like, let's just shoot it and let him just go. And that is one of the funniest moments in the movie to me. Next, we've got Joan Rivers, who plays Dot Matrix. Well, actually, Holden. Actually, actually. actually. Famous mine, Lorraine Yarnell performed in the costume. Joan just did the voice. I don't quite know what the order of events is, because I've heard both versions that that was always how it was supposed to go, or that Yarnell's performance vocally was not up to Brooks's standards, and he asked Joan to come in post-production and punch up the lines of dialogue and re-record. I did see that somewhere that Lorraine was disappointed she was not able to do the voice, so maybe the latter makes more sense. It's actually kind of ironic because I th- the guy who ended up pl- who played uh, Darth Vader was also disappointed that he found out like the day of the screening that he was replaced with James Earl Jones. Ah, uh, brutal. Joan Rivers, let me just go ahead and say we did a two-parter on Joan Rivers on Pop History on the Page 7 feed, so go check that out. I'm going to do, I'm just going to say for the purposes of this episode that her life was in a ton of turmoil during this time. Her late night show that caused a lifelong rift between her and Johnny Carson was about to go bust. Her husband was about to commit suicide. She, She was in this bizarre stage in her career that was really one of the pits for her before that she came up in the New York City stand-up scene that led her to being a regular guest and then stand-in host on the Tonight Show which exploded her all over the the US and put her in everybody's houses you know she became a definitely a household name but then it's tra- tragedy hit all at once in many ways during the fallout from her trying to break off and do her own show and this was right in the middle of that but she gives a killer performance I love it so much. She's so funny in this. Can we talk? Which was, of course, her tagline. I love that they put her tagline into the film. There's a few moments where, like, you can tell that uh, Lorraine Yarnell's, like, head bobs are not matching what's coming out of uh, Joan Rivers' voice. Mm -hmm. And so she definitely did punch up a bunch of those jokes. This is actually kind of interesting. So uh, Lorraine Yarnell was actually part of a... Famous nightclub act. They had their own, you know, they appeared on variety shows of the era. There's definitely a chance that, like, Brooks was aware of her and wanted her initially when they put this role together. And, in fact, her, like, signature thing as part of her uh, nightclub act with her then-husband called Shields and Yarnell was a kind of recurring sketch called The Clinkers, Mm. which was a 1950s married couple that were actually robots. And it was... You can find clips online. It's great physical comedy. Like, Brooks didn't just cast, like, some random mime. He cast, like, the greatest yeah. female robot actor of the era. It's odd to see the phrase famous mime. <laughs> Those two words don't usually go together for me, but it is fun to know that at one point there were mimes that were famous. If you, It's honestly worth a YouTube search. Uh, look up... Uh, Shields and Yarnell, 
the clinkers and see the lady behind the dot matrix costume uh actually doing her whole like weird thing superbly well it's great physical comedy she kills it in the movie and on roller skates at times i mean it's completely (laughs) crazy I gotta talk about. I think I, my Dom de Louise may be on my short list for favorite comedic actors. Him in Men in Tight, Robin Hood Men in Tights, as doing the Godfather parody is one of my favorite scenes in a thing ever. He's so great. And of course, he plays Pizza the Hut on this. And again, it's just the voice. He doesn't actually get into the costume. And we'll talk about how much of a misery that was. Dom DeLuise came up through off-Broadway and Broadway productions. His film career in the 70s and 80s was often saw him playing across Burt Reynolds in movies like Cannonball Run and Smokey and the Bandit 2, as well as doing voices for Don Bluth films like we've covered. Check out the Don Bluth episode. An American Tale and All Dogs Go to Heaven when he was not working with Mel Brooks. And it's a small part. It's whatever. But Pizza the Hut is one of the more memorable elements of the movie. I just love that they took... It's just such a great Mel Brooks move. They took a ridiculous fast food franchise. Pun. He just went for the pun. That was and it. Just That's a it. pun. It's so Things funny. Sounds like other thing. And it's so gross. And I loved how gross it was and still is. It's disgusting. Apparently, the person who wore that suit, we'll get to that later, but was miserable. Wait, no, no, no. We got it. Okay, so this is this is it. Um so first of all, uh, the guy uh, obviously Dom DeLuise just did the suit and or, or the d- just did the voice. Richard Karen is who the first wore the suit, and I think this is one of the things that made the Pizza the Hut thing so memorable. Is that the actual costume was a loose like wood and canvas frame upon which the crew actually smeared real pizza and toppings Ugh, on top of it. So gross. So like it's because <laughs> you know what a latex implant looks like. You know what face paint looks like. You know what all the uh, silicone inserts look like. But nothing in movie history looks as grotesque and horrible as Pizza the Hut because it's real just food glurping and globbling. And the way they accomplished that effect was sewn Throughout the frame and underneath all the pizza toppings, uh, basically resistant heat wires, like the stuff that's coiled in a space heater. You know what I'm talking about? That Mm -hmm. like, you know, the stuff that glows red when you put a current through it. And so the cheese is like liquefying and bubbling all over the suit while it's happening. And it got so hot that the food started burning and Karen ended up getting smoke inhalation and had to like... (laughs) throw the whole costume off and ran away and would not get back into it. <laughs> Rick Le- Lazzarini was a animatronic and uh, one of the ear puppeteers for the barf uh, costume. A very low guy on the totem pole actually had to step in and was the guy under the suit for most of the used released footage in the movie. Yes. Yes. So between John Candy and poor, poor Richard Karen. This was not a great film experience for fat guys and prosthetics. <laughs> Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot 
for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, other cameos include, of course, the man with 10,000 sound effects, or the man of 10,000 sound effects, Michael Winslow, who hailed from all of the Police Academy films. Brooks joked that uh, Michael Winslow saved him about $1,000 in sound effects costs, as well as John Hurt, who, of co- who was the original cast member of Alien, who had the chestburster moment happened. They brought him in. Of course, that's why he screams, not again. Never <laughs> got so that funny. joke. Until- I never got it until just now. I never realized that was the same actor, which is so crazy to me. He had to stop Brooks and ask for payment because he was told it was just a short cameo, not a thing where he has to get covered in like fluids and like <laughs> get strapped into a table. <laughs> Another thing that sets this movie apart is the non- Acting cast. Uh, this is Brooks' most expensive movie ever made. Yes, with a budget of $25 million. 1986, $25 million. Yeah. So that is, uh, it would have been one of the most expensive movies of that year had it come out in 1986. The, if, looking back on it, the effects are genuinely impressive. Genuinely. So there's $5 million of effects work done by a combination of Industrial Light and Magic and Apogee Inc., which was run by John Dykstra, who we mentioned in our uh, Battlestar Galactica episode. Yes. So, do you want to give them a yeah brief explanation? Uh, we actually we go into this more in our Return of the Jedi. It's just crossovers. So many crossovers. There was a rift within the effects team for that originally worked on Star Wars, as ILM was going to make a giant move to Marin County. And some of the rebels kind of spun off and did their own thing and formed Apogee, including John Dykstra. And so this production was really the first time these two companies kind of reconciled on the same project. But um, I don't quite know exactly who did what. I think Apogee Inc. did a lot of the spaceship shots. But the movie is so tied with industrial light and magic that the escape pods on the uh, Mega Maid is actually just unused footage from A New Hope that just was on the cutting room floor that ILM just used for this movie. Mm. Another thing is um, the costumes were done by this very pretentious costume designer who's went by one name, <laughs> Don Feld. <laughs> and if I wish we could sh- pop up visuals on this podcast because the you can find these online. The costume design sketches for Spaceballs are these like weirdly elegant live like very fashionable costumes uh-huh. that even makes the space ball grunts look like uh you know there was something out of milan fashion week the original drawing of barf is quite disturbing don't actually <laughs> look that up uh another wait another another mm-hmm. thing another thing the editor of this movie was actually the same he was an oscar winner because he was the editor for titanic and he was nominated wow. for Terminator 2 and like did all sorts of shit. The makeup artist is a guy named Ben Nye Jr. who uh, worked on Ghost and The Mummy and also Terms of Endearment, which is a weird left turn there. <laughs> uh, it was shot on MGM Studios, uh, which was at the time going through some real like weird financial issues. It was kind of the end of an era for MGM. 
but stuff like uh, the interiors of the spaceships uh, and Yogurt's Grand Temple mm-hmm. were all shot on basically the same soundstage that the original Wizard of Oz was shot on, which makes the kind of Wizard of Oz nature of the foursome that we follow in the movie a little more appropriate. Well, let me tell you about Nick McLean Sr., who was the cinematographer. His first film was Cheech and Chong's next movie and had done a slew of films leading up to Spaceballs, such as Cannonball Run and The Goonies. McLean said, I remember exactly what his instructions were. I had just finished a really dark movie, Lightwise, which was City Heat with Clint Eastwood. I used almost no light, and Brooks told me, he said, I paid for those walls. I want to see them. I want to see everything on the set. Don't So don't underlight anything. Light the hell out of everything as a comedy. And he also had not seen Star Wars at the time of the making of the film. They were using chroma key, by the way. This is an early usage of chroma key. You see green screen, but really it was blue screen in their case, all over the film. This is actually a weird thing um, in Space Wars, the documentary. So at the time... The sunglasses? You yeah, got to talk about the sunglasses? The yeah. blue screen was the largest one ever built for a movie production at the time, some 130-something feet tall to cover the star fields and the outside of the spaceships. And everyone on set was paranoid that there was this like weird health rumor going around that the reflected blue light would hurt your eyes. Basically, the same effect that uh, people who are on like Arctic expeditions have to be wary of. Like the UV light would reflect and somehow blind you over time. So all the behind the scenes footage of those uh, particular sets, everyone's wearing these yellow safety glasses everywhere. Right. And it was really hilarious. The in-between takes, they would have to put them on and take them back off. The actors after a while just gave up. Also, I love that Bill Pullman had some quotes about how inspired he was at how Mel Brooks would problem solve on set. Uh, He said, Mel had this thing where he said 10% of anything is good. It was his way of saying that in art and being creative, there are things you have to brush off, suggestions, ideas, whatever, to get to that 10% that is really good. It's that idea of looking for the exceptional and knowing it is rare, and you have to always be aware of how hard you have to look for that 10%. But also, he said, Mel used to do these power naps where he'd lay down for just five minutes, and I have never seen anything like the spirit that would return to him. He'd come back with all these great ideas and solve problems. It was quite dazzling. Special effects were done by Peter Albiez. He did films like Starship Troopers and Seven. Those are amazing effects movies. But of course, the effects in this, this movie are pretty damn solid, especially for the time. I mean, I thought it was... Fantastic. Again, these are pros. That's another. So this is one of the things that I think really makes Spaceballs stand out among parody movies. And stand the test of time, I think, too. Is it was on parody with the things it was parodying. (laughs) That was a little hominin humor for you guys out there. Um, They use, you know, the fact that they use these high level ILM John Dykstra, uh, uh, you know, professionals means that the spaceships look like spaceships. You know, uh, if I'm thinking of like just, you know, not another superhero movie or Scary Movie 5 or all of these right. like just kind of shitty parody movies that kind of flood the market, it, it always looks worse. It's always clearly cheap. It always, the, co- it, the commitment always like, you, you see how cheap and cynical the, pr- the product is by what they're willing to do to like recreate the thing they're trying to parody. But the moment that that spaceship turns into the vacuum cleaner (laughs) made is legitimately impressive. (laughs) 
<laughs> like legit. It's really cool looking. It, it, they actually took the time. You know, you could totally softball that sequence, but they actually took the time. And a lot of that is because they got help from Industrial Light and Magic in post-production as well, which we're about to get to. Before we get there, really quick, I just want to say, Brooks, who played President Scroob, which is an anagram of Brooks, I love that character, and the Yoda parody, Yogurt, he got a terrible rash from the gold makeup he had to don for the latter role and got horrible knee pain as well from playing yogurt from being on his knees all day to perform the part. Uh, can I do one last note on the cast? Sure. Because I found out this fact like a couple hours before we started recording and it blew my goddamn mind. Give me that juicy, juicy factoid, Jake. I am thirsty for it. Uh, the actor Tim Russ, who is most famous for playing Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager... Uh, as well as tons of other work. He's done a million voice acting roles on video games. Very prolific guy. Tuvok is the guy with the Afro comb in the desert yelling, we ain't found shit. <laughs> Which I love that scene. He is a science fiction legend in two respects. That's amazing. So in post-production, Mel Brooks gets further help from Lucasfilm by booking them for about $5 million in post-production work. They also constructed the Chestburster puppet, the escape pod launch you already mentioned as being an unused clip from Star Wars. Brooks also used that help from John Dykstra. We already talked about that, but it's just kind of incredible that they had all of this help from actual industrial light and magic. You also, by the way, little factoid, you can see a Millennium Falcon parked outside of the diner just before they do the Chestburster scene. And uh, yeah, I think, again, that's why it has that polish, that sheen, the fact that they actually got the Lucas crew to film it. The film was released in June of 1987. It went on to make $38.1 million in the box office, which was a bit of a disappointment. But like we said, it really becomes this smash cult hit that ends up being Brooks's biggest moneymaker. Brooks said, I'll tell you, I've made a dozen films, some of them really big hits, and all of them have been left in the dust by Spaceballs. It never stops selling. When I think about getting a bottle of wine in a restaurant, I say, my God, they want $90 for this wine? Then something in me says, the hell with it. Spaceballs will cover it. I don't think there was more than one or two critics who liked it, but by far the most letters I get are from people who love Spaceballs. It is the perfect father-son movie, though. It is the perfect mother-daughter movie. Lexi talked to me about how she watched this movie with her mom and how meaningful that was to her growing up. And I have the same memory with my dad. Mm -hmm. Like it is my the perfect, too. it is the perfect parent-child film. It's genderless in that sense. It's just funny. It's PG, it's rated PG. And is part of the weird canon of films that have the f have an f bomb in a PG uh -huh. rated film uh -huh. because it, people were way more relaxed. It was before PG thirteen became a thing. I can I do a little detour, Holden? Because sure. one of the things that you I feel like gets kind of tossed over when we talk about Spaceballs is the insane pop song that plays over the big escape sequence. Yes, we're the Spaceballs. Yes. Uh, uh, Mary, if you could play just a little bit of that uh, fantastic song. I forget how much that thing slaps. Yeah, it is good. so catchy. It's very catchy. Not only that, but it, 
I turns out it was sung by the fucking spinners, the spinners oh. who were this late Motown group that kind of rev, kind of rev, after years of struggling, hit, had two number one hits with uh, they sang "I'll Be Around," and you know whenever you call me, I'll, I'll be, be there. Yeah. And could it be I'm falling in love? Like. Genuine, like, accomplished singers. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're in the Vocal Group Hall of Fame. And I don't know why it's in there, besides the fact that in the 80s, if you had a sci-fi comedy, whether it was Weird Science or Back to the Future or Ghostbusters, you had to have some weird funky synth theme song. Yes, yes. It was just 100%. what was done at the time. Busters. Yeah, oh, yeah, if you totally. really broke it down, I like if I had one of those song exploder music head podcasts, I could break down how all of those songs shared the same DNA. Uh-huh. Um, but it is it is genuinely catchy. In fact, it is the third most popular song by the Spinners on YouTube. Think about it. I'll be around. Could it be I'm falling in love? And where the space balls are in their canon. <laughs> If you if you haven't heard it in a long time, just jam out to it. It's, it's so, so good. good. So and oh my god, that hilarious sequence with the bear and everything. So I love it. There's ends a bear on the there. Such a it's so strong when it all comes together like that. It all it starts with the the one space bomb that with the Tiffany drums and then it just starts going off. So uh, George Lucas writes to Mel Brooks after the movie came out, saying he loved it and that he thought he was going to bust something from laughing so hard. The novelization, by the way, quick little factoid. Oh, you're not- talking about the novelization Spaceballs the book. Yes, that was written by Jovial Bob Stein. Wait, also why known does as- that name sound so familiar? R.L. Stein. Goosebumps. We did a Goosebumps episode. Check it out. Crossover. So I want to answer the question. I think I have the answer to the question. Why? Because I don't think even Brooks understands why Spaceballs stands the test of time so well, why it became his biggest moneymaker. I say this. Blazing Saddles was his most culturally relevant comedy film. Young Frankenstein was his greatest classic comedy film. But pound for pound, joke for joke, Spaceballs, I think, is his funniest comedy film. I really believe that. And just watching it again confirmed that for me. And if you need more evidence of that, Please just watch the ludicrous speed sequence in the movie. It is one. Of, it is might be my favorite sequence in a comedy film. We can't stop. It's too dangerous. My brain is in my feet. <laughs> <laughs> and if if you need a little more convincing, the VHS tape part where they do a straight up vaudevillian back and forth about what time it is. Um, now, just now, when? Oh, so much meta humor. <laughs> so much. And the whole part and all the fourth wall breaking is so great with the stunt doubles and everything. And, and just it's what what's great about the fourth wall breaking that movie is you like they keep doing it and then you kind of forget about it. And then just like I died when during the big uh, fake lightsaber fight, Dark Helmet just slashes the mic, the boom mic guy and kills him. It's so good. Because you still forgot that we're living in this Gonzo universe. And for many young children watching this with their parents, this was their first exposure to meta humor that you could even play with this kind of thing. 
it's like a Pixar film, but coming from the other direction. Instead of being a kids' film that gets adults to, it's actually like an adult film that gets kids to. No, it's a movie for fifteen-year-olds, and fifteen-year-olds are basically just baby adults. <laughs> so this was so much fun to do this episode. Jake, do you have anything else for me? Do you have anything else before we wrap this up? With the sweetness, also comes sadness. With the good comes the bitter despair, and. We have to talk about Spaceballs, the animated series. Right. I almost I almost ended the show without talking about it. Hold Can in. you give me a rundown on this situation, I guess I'll call it? This is, without a doubt, the single worst TV show I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh, no. Now, Mel Brooks's career, which we should get into if we ever did a full retrospective on it, is full of peaks and valleys, moments, you know, uh, feast and famine, times where he could do no wrong and times where he was just shunned by Hollywood and could not get anything made. And with the boom that he had late in his career with the producers, the musical, he had just enough, just wind at his back that he got a TV series uh, greenlit and obviously the most marketable thing with his name on it is Spaceballs. It, it genuinely has the, it had the longest legs in terms of cable, VHS, DVD, it, Laserdisc. Uh, you know, even in eras where you can't actually get Young Frankenstein or the producers on Blu-ray, you can always find Spaceballs. It's, it's truly is this standout hit, even though it did not do well critically at the time. So he got it approved and he plays... Uh, President Scrooge again. He plays Yogurt again. They got Daphne Zuniga. They got Joan Rivers. John for uh, Barf. They play. They got a guy named Tino and Santa who played the uncle in Bobby's World. He does an oddly good John Candy. It's kind of amazing how good of a John Candy that guy does. The writing staff. I looked up these people. None of them are working in television anymore. Uh, one of them was Thomas Meehan's own son. The animation is the worst thing I've ever seen. It is like sub Newgrounds level. And every episode is just a shitty parody of something else with like really cringy jokes and just uh, this weird Spike TV horniness, not like ha-cha-cha-cha. Oh God, Uh, yeah, guy questions or whatever. Spike TV was so bad at a point. (laughs) This aired on G4, like the year it shut down. Uh, and there's just, you can find, you can find it online. It's, I, it's just a disaster. Brooks tries his hardest with the material, but from the visuals to the joke writing, uh, to even the tone, it's just awful. And I think what happened was they got it greenlit and then had their funding pulled out from them because there Mm. were a couple of articles that came out like uh, years before it was a net before it was released. And they had like pretty good character designs and pretty neat concept artwork and the actual characters and animation is nothing like that i've looked at the credits and all the animation was outsourced to these weird like foreign houses in the philippines and korea that like barely exist anymore it's sad it's genuinely sad to watch if you want to just feel the kick of time and history and hubris Find Spaceballs the animated series, but as far as I'm concerned, having learned about it and seen what it was, 
Let's just pretend it doesn't exist. <laughs> I will say there has always throughout the years been talk of a sequel, though. The, I um, mean, they re- name drop it, The Quest for More Money. Uh, I also love they also, at one point it was called Spaceballs 3, The Search for Spaceballs 2, which <laughs> should have also been hilarious. But yeah, apparently uh, Rick Moranis, of course, is retired from acting since 1997, though he does occasionally pop out for some voiceover work. Brooks has said the only way he'd make a sequel is with Moranis, and so that's going to be a tough one to pull off. That said, there has been slight interest throughout the years of doing a sequel at some point. Who knows? Who knows? But I will say that just about wraps it up for our episode on Spaceballs. We hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed rewatching that movie this week, because I really thoroughly did. And uh, thank you so much for joining us, guys. Check me out on twitch.tv forward slash holdnatorsho. More importantly, check out patreon.com slash whizbrew if you'd like an extra bonus episode every single week for $5 a month. There's other stuff on there. Please check us out. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash whisper really helps keep the show going, helps us survive, Jake. The next time you're in your friend's, your rich friend's Tesla, <laughs> and he says, do you want to go to ludicrous speed? Know that you have space balls to thank for that. Follow <laughs> That's me right. on at best Jake Young on Twitter. And um, as always, Holden, always remember, keep on whizzing. And never stop bruising. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.